morning is going to come from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Please follow along in your Bibles or on the screen on your right and left. Hebrews, chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds, and he ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This ends the reading of God's word, and children can be dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Let's pray and ask God's help as we turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and discover what he has for us there. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy that we have in worshiping and singing to you, prophesying as it were over your people and over your world, the great truths of who you are and what you've done to come save us. Give me now a spirit of prophecy as I speak to Seek to speak out Hebrews 1 and its truths over the body. Give discernment to everyone hearing my voice. Live stream recording and those in this room to hear and to weigh and to test everything I say according to the plain teaching of your holy word. Let us not overlook anything nor recast anything into our own image. But see you and your glory and the glory of your son so plainly here in Hebrews chapter 1, and especially verses 7, 8, and 9. Lord, I thank you for the way that you will empower and enliven us by the living word, which is both fixed and alive, teaching us as we sit, making resolves of faith under it, ready to hear your voice as you instruct us now by your Holy Spirit. Watch over your word to perform it. Make it run on in triumph and not return void, but accomplish the purpose you intend for it. Bless richly this faith family with Hebrews 1 now so that we might find it a more sweet and, and, and delightful treasure than any gift we could receive during the Christmas season. May we say with David in Psalm 63, your love is better than life itself. We want to taste and see, Lord, that you are good. From your word now, this very moment, we ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory. Amen. This Advent season, 
We're taking a break from our series through 2 Samuel, and we're celebrating the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ to earth. We're joining with believers around the world. In fact, Christmas, the Advent season, is a global holiday. Praise the name of the Lord. He's infinitely superior than all other beings. We've already seen that Christ, the Son, is infinitely superior to the prophets. Though all the prophets point to him, he surpasses them all in greatness and supremacy. We've seen that the angels announce him, yet he is greater than, in fact, infinitely superior to all the angels. They adore him because he is worthy of their worship, being infinitely greater than them. Greater than the prophets, greater than the angels means we should learn the lesson. Christ is greater than we are. And and like prophets, we want to constantly tell people how we want to decrease while his greatness increases. And we want to be like the angels, constantly bowing before him in worship, saying, don't worship me, worship God. He's the great joy and satisfaction of your soul. So let the communities of Cloquet and Esco and Proctor, Carlton and Saginaw, Superior and Duluth and all of the Northland hear the command of the Holy Spirit now, thundering in their hearts, even if they can't hear it in my voice, worship God. Adore him forever. Bow before him. Let your entire life be an offering of worship. Ask him, Lord, what is it that you want in my emotional condition? What is it that you want in my mind? How how do you want my body to worship you in all my relationships? Let every dollar, let every desire, let every plan and dream, let every task at work, let every sorrow be to you a worship and a praise. In verse 7, again, the contrast is held up for us by the writer of the Hebrews. He's going to say one thing about angels, and he's going to show it as a tremendous contrast to the supremacy and superiority of Christ, infinitely greater. Look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but, and then he goes on to talk about how much greater Christ is than angels. Why does he bring up Psalm 104 verse 4 and mention angels as ministers, flames of fire, and angels who are merely winds, I think for two reasons. One, they are ministers. They are sent. They are not of their own decision. They're going out because God sends them. That's their role in his economy and in his creation. They don't sit and make decisions and plans. They add nothing to Christ. They give him no wisdom or counsel. They simply do what he says. That makes them of a lower order. Second, they do temporary things like blow wind and burn fire. Like the wind that dried up the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross freely. Back in Exodus, that was an angel, I think. And the flame of fire that came down to consume the water-soaked offering in Elijah's day in 1 Kings, that too was an angel being sent out as a minister of the Lord. And their work then is temporary. Their work is brief, like a wind or a flame of fire. But in contrast, Christ isn't like that at all. Look how verse 8 begins. But... Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He goes on to declare that God, through Jesus Christ, his Son, has absolute right to reign because he reigns in absolute righteousness. Everything Christ says is right. 
Everything Christ commands and demands of you and me is right. Everything Christ commands of the world is right. Everything he says for us to do is right. And that makes his reign righteous and his worth infinitely superior to angels, prophets, and you and me. When Christ says, all money, including yours and wealth, is mine and is to be used for my glory, I loan it to you to use for my glory. He's right to say that. He's right to say all sexual union belongs inside covenant marriage between a man and a woman committed for life. He's right to say our bodies are intended as a temple to be respected for His glory. He's right to say all speech is to be gracious and upbuilding. He's right to say we are to love others, even our enemies. He's right to say we are to be humble and to honor others as better than ourselves. He's right to say human life is His handiwork and must always be treasured. He's right to say His design for the family is good and must always be preserved. He's right to say He alone has final authority over who enters His heaven. He is right to say I rule over even the emotions and desires of your heart, for your heart is also mine. His right to reign means he reigns rightly always, and he therefore has the right to demand and command our very lives. Everything about us is his. We are made for his glory and honor. And that includes not just the church, but all human beings in all places at all times. You see, the angels just simply do as they're told. But the problem with we human beings is we somehow look at the righteousness of Christ and His right to rule and reign over us in every aspect of our lives, and we say, hmm, I need you to prove that to me, Jesus. Are you sure? Because I really like to do the other. It's really fun, actually. Sin is really, really fun. Do you have, in fact, the right to tell me how to think and feel, how to handle my body, my money, my time, my opportunity? Do you have the right? Romans 11, 33 through 36, declares that God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, is worthy of all praise and honor and glory, for He is high above us. And needs us in no way to rule in righteousness, but has the right to, in fact, impose lovingly His will upon us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul writes. How unsearchable are His judgments. That's His right to reign, His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? None of us has. Or who has been His counselor? Not one. Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? None of us has. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Here's the great stumbling stone. Christ's reign in righteousness here is is outlined. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He says it again in verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, the stumbling stone is we who are made in God's image and we who are made to love and cherish His commands. To made and we were made to love and honor and obey all of His instructions. 
we find it pleasurable to say, no, I want to run my own life, and I want my own life and the privilege I have to run it the way I want to be called a right. How many fictional rights have we created? How many rights do not exist in our Constitution or in any society or government, and certainly not, are not within God and His Word. And yet we have called it a right to say, I want to harm unborn children, and I wish to harm my own body. And if not mine, then I wish to harm other children's bodies. And this is my right. We're not just satisfied with committing sin in secret. We must have it protected. We must call evil good. We must elevate wickedness to the point of being a right. You see the stumbling block? Christ alone says, I rule and reign in righteousness. I am God. Come, obey, bow the knee to me right now. You can just feel rising in here the spirit moving on your heart, right? It's moving on my heart right now. You can just feel rising the tension. You know there's areas of your emotions and of your thinking and of your body and of your past and of your present and of your future and of your relationships that you know must be submitted to the right rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, often you'll hear someone say, and how many times I've heard it, for me to follow a path of sin, you don't understand. It just feels so right. If Jesus Christ stands as the Lord of glory, ruling in righteousness, infinitely greater than angels, as Hebrews 1 says, who in the world does he think he is to be able to tell us what to do? Who in the world is this Jesus Christ born to Mary and Joseph 2,000 years ago, lived a righteous life, died, was buried, rose again, ascended to the Father's right hand, and is seated at the Father's right hand at this moment, ruling over the world. Who does he think he is to tell us how to order our very lives right down to our very emotions? Well, we've seen plainly the answer to that question, right? He's the final word of God. He's the only begotten Son of God. He's the creator and heir of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. He's the upholder of the universe and He's the firstborn into all the world. He is God Himself and therefore has every right to tell us exactly how to live our lives for we exist for His glory. That title, the firstborn, that was used earlier in the passage, is a beautiful picture. What does it refer to? Not that Jesus was born before Adam. Chronologically, that's not the claim, although Jesus did exist eternally as the Son long before Adam. It means when he was born to Mary and Joseph, he was born both God and man. He was under God's favor, for the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. She miraculously conceived in her womb the Son of God. And he was born firstborn, first in a long line. He will lead many who will follow to honor and serve God. He will be the firstborn among many brethren, Paul says in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Don't miss the unbreakable connection. 
in Paul's mind between Christ being the firstborn and he's justifying us. For the next verse goes on. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That word justified is the work that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts to take away sin and to place us into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father through the Spirit. Christ came into the world as a righteous judge to lay his own life down and justify those who by their sin are unrighteous before him. That's who he is. That's his identity. That's why we worship him. That's why we adore him. That's why we follow him. He came into the world to say, I am both the standard of your righteousness and I command you to it. And when you and I must simply agree together that you have not carried it out, not one of us has. No, not one of us has. Then who do we have to help us live up to the standard of righteousness Christ commands? And he says, it is me. I will become sin, though I never sinned. In order that in me, you might become the righteousness of God. One of the reasons most people reject Christ and live apart from him, though they want his blessings, they'll sing his carols and they'll give his gifts and they'll enjoy his food and they'll breathe his air and they'll stand under the safety of his gravity and they will bask in the kindness of his patience and love, yet they will not bow the knee and surrender to him in worship because he seems to be a cruel taskmaster. That his commands are impossible to achieve and that his rule and reign is not safe. Have a conversation with someone about the the ethics of living a life financially or sexually or in our speech with an unbeliever and they will say, that seems maddening and ridiculous and even evil. I will not follow Jesus. And yet his commands are beautiful, clear and strong, sweet, full of blessing in nature, full of confirmation and illustration throughout all of nature. Every time a person says, Lord, I reject your commands as right, and I choose my preferences as right. I am placing myself, when I say that, in the role of God, and I'm rejecting his right to reign. And I have now entered into a lifelong battle with nature. Everything about nature will stand against me. The curse settles. Thorns and thistles grow in my life. And I find myself constantly ever more frustrated, ever more alone, ever more anxious and depressed, and ever more resentful of God. And yet I have only myself to blame. When I trust in Christ, when I bow before Him, when I do what I hope every person will do after the hearing of this message and say, I thrill, I rejoice, I delight to bow my knee and surrender myself to King Jesus. Every one of you hearing me now, delight in bowing yourself to King Jesus. If you've done it already, do it again with me and rejoice that he will receive you. If you've never done this, let your heart melt before him right now and bow and surrender to him. Give your life to Christ. As a result of reading with me, verse 7 of the angels, he says, he makes his angels' winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Is he safe? Is Jesus safe? Is he safe for you to bow yourself before him in complete surrender and say, Lord, my entire life is yours? Is he safe? That's the question coursing through your mind right now. If you're a believer, you say, Lord, I know you're safe, but there's part of me that is so unbelieving and resistant. Please help that part. If you're not a believer, you're saying, your talk is crazy. I'm enduring this sermon to get out of here. You and your Bible are crazy. The writer of Hebrews knows the question, and he's answering it in three ways. Is Christ's righteousness and rule in our lives safe? Answer number one, Christ's reign is right and safe in our lives because he's God. You notice the first four words of verse eight? Your throne, O God. It's a quote from Psalm 45, six and seven. God is talking. And in Psalm 45, it's a coronation psalm. God is speaking to the kings who were coronated and inaugurated over Israel. And God called them God, one of the rarest places in the Bible, because they were representative of God for Israel's people. The writer of Hebrews reads Psalm 45 and he says, Aha, that's God talking to his son. The king of kings, lord of lords. The one to whom all Israel's kings pointed. And he applies it under the inspiration of the Spirit to God talking to his son. Stunningly, God says to his son, your throne, O God. Christ is God and his rule is the righteous rule of God. He serves no standard above him. His righteousness is his behavior, which always exalts the Trinity. That's what makes his behavior right. All our behavior gains its righteousness from exalting the Father, Son, and Spirit in all that we feel, think, say, and do. Christ is God. That's the claim of the first phrase of verse 8. Christ is unrushed, unthreatened, and unimpeded. He's sitting on his throne at the Father's right hand. Verse 3 said, several, two Sundays ago, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is seated in quiet sovereignty. He was elevated there when he left the earth in Acts chapter 1, and the angel said, he's gone to the Father's right hand. Essentially, he'll be returning back in the clouds the same way. This is Christ in his sovereign glory. It was good he went to the Father's right hand because John 15, 26 tells us he then sent the Father. He and the Father sent the Helper, the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Onto the earth, the Spirit of God is sent by the Father and the Son, to convict the world of sin and of judgment of righteousness. That's what he's doing in the world all over right now. That's how you can have major university presidents resign mere days after they speak moral wickedness in public. 
The Holy Spirit's convicting the world of sin and of judgment of righteousness. You're doing that in your heart right now. And to every person who you feel is so far away from God that they're unreachable, the Holy Spirit is right there. Convicting. John 16, 9. Christ's rule is safe because he's the second person of the Trinity. He's God. Your throne, O God. He's ruling at the Father's right hand. He rules with power and glory and with wonder and with might and with infinite resource, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent beyond human imagination or conception. That means he needs nothing. It means he needs to manipulate nothing. It means he's never rushed. He has no party to advocate for. He has no campaign to engage in. He has no political sphere to to, uh, influence. He's God. He's upholding the world by the word of his power. He calls everything mine. You've heard me say often from one of the the theologians I like to read, Abraham Kuyper. He was dedicating a university in the Netherlands in in the year 1880 in Amsterdam. He said in a speech very famously, No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest, says Kuiper, and there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's because he's God. Is his rule safe? Yes, it's safe because he doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need to manipulate you or anyone else. He's absolute deity on the throne. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The point is clear. Because Christ is God, his rule and reign are safe. But then we're told in the next phrase, Christ's rule and reign is forever and therefore it's also safe. Verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The point is clear. Christ's reign will never end. No, No coup will succeed. He cannot be toppled. No poison, no army, no assassination, no vote can remove him from his reign. He reigns forever. He will not be surpassed or replaced. He has no successor. Christ reigns in glory and in power forever and ever. He is not selfish. He he instills no taxes. He never needs to be unkind. Things never go separate from his plan. He does not have plan Bs because his rule and reign secures all plan A's. He has no secret recordings that will come out to undermine his trustworthiness. He has no secret sins in his past to hide. He has no compromised views or values that he doesn't let people know about until they press him. He has no moral failings. He reigns forever, and therefore his reign is good and safe. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His commands are timeless and permanent. There is nothing in the Bible that is blanked out, edited, redacted, and negated because it's old. He fears no one. He waits for no one. He submits to no one. 
He learns from no one. He will never be replaced. He will never compromise. He will never be threatened. His rules come in quietness and in absolute peace, and that is the only way peace is made on the earth. To Russia, to Ukraine, to Sudan, to Gaza, to Palestine, to Israel, to the United States, to your home and mine, to every church, to every ministry, to every business, to every government, peace comes on the earth in one way and in one way only when the Prince of Peace is happily submitted to who rules and reigns. Jesus Christ is the singular peacemaker. Revelation 5.13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He's the only one who supplies peace on the earth. For his reign is not only as God, but it goes on forever and ever. Your reign, O Christ, goes on forever and ever. And therefore his reign is safe. He is not in any way needing to withhold good things. He is not in any way needing to fudge the truth. He is not in any way needing to, to pull a bait and switch on anyone. There is no secrets behind Christ that you don't want to know about. There's no little pudgy man pulling cords behind the, cor- the, the screened-in area so that the big, old, ugly, uh, scary things can happen with belching smoke and flashing lights. He is pure, he is known, he is righteous altogether, he is good by its very definition, he is the very Son of God. It's his name and his mission that alone brings peace on the earth. You remember this, you've heard it many times, it's time to share it again, only with new detail. In 1914, during the height of World War I, a war in which 15 million people would lose their lives. There was a truce. Do you remember this? The Christmas Eve truce of 1914. It was a truce that took shape under and because of the lordship and righteous reign of Christ. How do I know that? One private recorded in his diary what that Christmas Eve was like in the winter, the deep winter in Germany where he was fighting trench warfare, dug into a muddy, disease-filled trench on this side, no man's land in the middle, where all the dead bodies lay of animals and humans, and a trench on the other side. And then all manner of attrition happened within those trenches, and then all manner of unspeakable warfare between them. One private said, It was a beautiful, moonlit Christmas night, frost on the ground, white almost everywhere. Another member of the 5th London Rifle Brigade, Graham Williams, described it with this detail. First, the Germans would sing one of their carols into the quiet, eerie night, and then we would sing one of ours. Until when we started up, O come, all ye faithful, the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adeste Fideles. And Graham said, and I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. Into the eerily silent night, one German stepped out of his muddy, disease-riddled, death-filled trench into no man's land with a sign that said, you no shoot, we no shoot. And he hollered, Merry Christmas in English. 
Soon across the Western Front, soldiers from Belgium, France, England ceased to fire and met the Germans in the area between the trenches. They were allowed to bury their dead and exchange gifts such as hats, buttons, and cigarettes. Merry Christmas was the cry that began the truce. You might, you might remember, and I didn't know this, so, so this might be new for you too, but just a few months before, the Pope at the time had called for a truce in the fighting. It's like many are calling for a truce over Israel and Hamas right now. The Pope had called for a truce, but no one submitted to it. No one heard his word. No one yielded. And, and yet here are warriors, soldiers on both sides who are willing to come out and not only exchange gifts and, and offer what rations they had to share together and they ate together. One private even talks about, about uh, roasting some pig meat that they were able to butcher. And one, another talks about making a ball out of clothing and, and some, some wrapping in order that they could kick it around. And you can just imagine the curses found on that land and the curses going away. The thorns that were growing on that no man's land are, are being rooted out because someone said, Mary, Christ Mass. Christ Mass, the gospel, the mission of Christ. Christ's mission. Christ Mass means Christ's mission. It's the very gospel. He came into the world to live a righteous life, to die on the cross for those who are unrighteous in order that they might become the righteousness of God by faith. That's what Christ Mass is all about. That's the greatest gift God has ever given or could ever give to the world. It's Christ's good reign that brings about peace on the earth. His reign is finally safe because his reign is driven by joy. Look at verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God has said, your reign, son, is so righteous and perfect and like us and like you and like me and like the Spirit that I'm going to anoint you as king with the oil of gladness. It's also a quote from Psalm 45. It meant that in the day Israel had her kings, that her king would have the joy of the Lord to guide and strengthen him. And Solomon and David and so many great kings demonstrated that. The evil kings lacked it. Oh, that this... Savior, this reigning King Jesus might be the apex example of the joy that we delighted. He'd be the one passing the, the bacon and kicking the ball around in the no man's land. He's the anointed Messiah of joy. He has the bridegroom coming to her whom he has died for to beautify and she's lovely in his sight. We serve a happy Savior. We serve a joyful King. We serve a King whose gladness is from the anointing oil of His Father. And He delights in being King. You can just imagine the way He grabbed children and took them to Himself when He was in His earthly ministry. And you can imagine the way He would joke with them and, and rejoice with them and giggle with them and laugh with them. I think about that every time I interact with a child. I was down visiting little Oliver Doty at Minneapolis Children's Hospital, and I thought, what could I say to help bring a smile to his face when he would much rather be home? 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He shall never again, you shall never again fear evil on that day. It shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah said to the people of God. Not only does Christ rejoice over us with loud singing in his joy, and if you listen carefully, you can hear the voice of Christ rejoicing with song over his church. But he also gives the command that we fulfill the righteousness of Christ by having his joy in us. He says, I command you not only to follow my commands of righteousness, but receive my joy in you. John 15 10 and 11, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's like holding your hands out in a cup like this and say, okay, God, pour in the Pacific. It overflows. His joy is a divine, infinite, supernatural joy that he pours into your life. And if you have that joy, it doesn't mean you have no sorrows, no hardships, no difficulty, no pain, no loss, no sorrow. It doesn't mean that. It means every one of those sorrows, every one of those hardships, every one of those illnesses and difficulties and pains is transformed by the joy so that you can say with Paul, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The alternative is to say, I don't give you, I don't recognize your right, King Jesus, to rule my life. I do not surrender my money or sexuality or my body or my emotions or my speech to you. I don't surrender my relationships or anything to you. I resist those things because I find your righteousness objectionable and I find mine preferable. And now the labor will be for that individual who speaks such to rage against the nature of their own body. Sin always violates nature. Sin always misuses what good gifts God has given so that they become perverse. That's what sin always does. Nature is this wonderful, illustrative tool that God gives in order to say, it's a mercy to you that you look at nature all around you and find that my commands allow you to live in harmony with it. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Our Savior, our King, our righteous ruler is full of joy and he calls you to joy. What does that mean? Why does it make his his rule and righteousness safe? It makes it safe because now he doesn't need you to add to him anything. 
He didn't need, he wasn't lonely. He didn't need us to fulfill any need in him. He wasn't lacking. He wasn't wanting for anything. There is nothing that we needed to supply in him. We don't come alongside him like like other leaders have to have followers behind them because they're insufficient and weak and, and without purpose, without those leaders behind them. That's not the way the lordship of Christ works. He, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in perfect, satisfied joy in eternity forever. And they shall be for the future eternity. We add nothing to Him. We get the joy of coming into His presence and being encircled into the conspiracy of joy that exists within the Trinity. All your pursuits of unrighteousness are driven by a quest for joy, a joy that never comes So I invite you to turn and seek first Christ and His kingdom and His righteousness and you will have His ocean-like joy to enable you to live through the challenges and difficulties that He's permitted in your life. And He will add all these other things to you as well, Matthew 6.33. Christ reigns supreme as God forever and He reigns with abounding joy. Because He is God, there is none wiser. His wisdom surpasses all that is known by all persons or could be known. Because he is God, there was no one stronger. All strength he possesses and even borrows and loans to others from his infinite reservoir of power. His righteousness is safe because there is no one kinder. It will take an eternity for him to reveal to us all the kindness he has for us. His reign and righteousness is safe because there's no one purer. He's sinless without even a wisp of an unholy thought. His rule and righteousness in our life is safe because He is obedient to the Father perfectly and with joy. His rule and righteousness is safe because there's no more fear, no more fierce upholder and exactor of justice and holy wrath than He. And His righteousness and rule is safe because there is no one more gracious and merciful to sinners such as you and me than He. No one more patient. No one nearly as good, no one who could possibly win your allegiance and hold it for the rest of your life and into eternity. Someone may have heard me say these things and ask, when children are violated, when innocent people are wronged or or killed, when women are brutalized, when the innocent are harmed, where is your God? Where is your righteous ruler? One important Bible answer that we've seen from Hebrews 1.3, and we as a church have seen it from the book of Revelation, is this. My Christ is seated on his throne, storing up wrath against all those who do such evil things. He will exact that wrath upon them for an eternity in perfect justice. His patience toward them is his extensive merciful invitation and overture to say, Come, repent of all your sin and trust in me. And since God is just in all his ways, and none of us is righteous, no, not one, then should not the one who asks such a question, as well as the one who answers it, flee to Christ and find supreme grace that he gives for the sin-sick ones such as you and me, so that we might repent, lest we also perish. I end with this. I came across this wonderful quote from a writer named Elise Fitzpatrick. She tells in very simple, practical terms how to live out the great righteousness and supremacy of Christ in your daily life with just this brief paragraph. She says, I think it's very easy for me to focus my attention on myself. 
I don't mean that I just sit around thinking about me and how wonderful I am, although I'm not above that. No, I mean that I tend to focus my thought on my Christianity, how I'm doing, what I'm learning, how my prayer time is going today, how I avoided that pesky sin or fell into it again. I think about what I'm supposed to accomplish for Christ, and I interact with others on the same works-oriented ground. But this day, like every day, isn't about me at all. It's about Him, His sinless life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign, and the sure promise of His return. It's the gravity of His life that should attract my thoughts toward Him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the glories of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and King in Hebrews 1. Thank you that He's God. Thank you that He reigns forever. Thank you that He reigns in joy. I thank you for the privilege of now bowing, as it were, my knee before you in happy surrender. And I invite every person in the hearing of my voice to do the same. Bow their head and their heart and their body before you and say, Lord, my life is utterly and fully yours. I hold nothing back. What transformation you will achieve in our homes and in our hearts and in our relationships and in our church family when every person, me beginning, and all of us, happily surrender to the righteous reign of King Jesus. Infinitely greater than angels and prophets, infinitely greater than us, worthy of all following and obedience and worship. Receive from us, Lord, complete surrender, absolute joy-filled allegiance and dedication. You are worthy. You have shown yourself good and safe, and we trust you. Help us to trust you more in every area of life. Through Christ, I pray all these things. Amen. Let's respond.